Good morning, church. I was talking to David this morning. I said, what's the, the theme this month? And uh, when I was speaking to Daniel, Daniel did tell me, and I thought, picked out a psalm, and then thinking about the psalm, and then I forgot what the theme was all about. <laughs> but I see it's victory. So we'll, I'll try and get the word victory in there once or twice. Uh, I just uh, lost track of all that. Who reads novels and goes straight to the back page to find out who done it? We've got one who confesses. <laughs> I, I think there's more than you know. <laughs> Well, that's what we're going to do. We're, we're not going to find out who done it. But we are going to go to the last verse of this particular psalm. To note the admonition that the psalmist ends with. He says that the wise will ponder the things that are written in this particular psalm and understand something. Understand the loving kindness of the Lord. If you look at the first three verses, you can understand why it's commonly believed that this psalm was written after the return of the exiles from the Babylonian captivity. And that may very well be true, but I would suggest to you that the application of this psalm knows no bounds. God's loving kindness is not apparent to everybody. It ought to be, but it isn't. Many people are preoccupied with the presence of evil and calamities in the world, and they can find no reason, therefore, to believe in the existence of God, or if they can find reason to believe in the existence of God, they find reason to find fault with God and condemn God for being a God who is mean and severe and uh, other such epithets. It is a complex world. It is a puzzling world. And that's why I suppose people uh, view things so differently in this world. Sometimes people need help to understand how some people can love God. They just can't comprehend. How can you love God? It's true that people die every day from distressing circumstances that are mentioned in this psalm. But imagine this. Imagine if men never ever died from the, the perils of travel or the perils of prison or the perils of deathly sickness or the perils of the sea. If such was the case, that nobody ever died from such things, we would begin to think this is some sort of benign world that has no problems, has no dangers. And we would think we don't need God. But the point is, men do die from such things. So there are very real and present dangers in this world in which we are living. There are very real and present dangers that we 
desire to be saved from. We want to have victory in life. God watches over men. His ears are open to their prayers. And we can never, ever understand the debt to which we owe God for the life that we live. We have no idea of the depth of his loving kindnesses. Who knows how often you have come close to death. You don't. I don't. There was a man one time in America who was climbing a mountain. It's a fairly high mountain. He knew that he would have to keep moving to get to the top and uh, return before darkness set in. So he set off and every time he came to a spot where he had a vantage point looking down over the valleys, he would just stop and take a photograph, keep moving, keep moving. And on the journey there he came to a cave and he was out in the bright sunshine he looked into the cave and it was dark, he couldn't see and he was tempted to go in and have a look around and see what was in the cave but he remembered that he had to keep moving. So he just stood there outside and he just took a snap and continued on his journey. This was in the old days when, you know, you had to take your film down to get it developed. You young people don't know what that's all about. But you had to do that. So he took his uh, film down to the, uh, the chemist and uh, got it developed and he was going through all these shots he had that he'd taken from the mountain. Then he came across one that didn't recognize what it was. It looked awfully black. And he thought, what was this one? When did I take this? And then all of a sudden he remembered, oh, that's when I just held it up into the face of that cave and just took a snap. And he looked closely. There in the murkiness of that film was a mountain lion in the crouched position, ready to spring. If he'd gone in, he either would have been badly injured or even killed. But he never knew. He never knew the danger. And he went on his day, and it was everything was fine and wonderful. How many circumstances like that have we experienced in life? Who can tell if an unexpected delay here may have saved me an accident over there? Who can tell whether a chance word here may have saved me a lot of pain there? You remember the king of Persia. He couldn't sleep one night, a little insomnia. So he had somebody read something that would put him to sleep, the records of the kingdom. And he found out and was reminded of Mordecai. And he said, oh, what did we ever do for that bloke? Saved my life. Well, we did nothing. And that started a whole chain of events which resulted in Esther, of course, saving the nation from extermination. The ancient artist in this particular psalm has painted word pictures we can all understand. In each case, we come face to face with distress. And all the four pictures that are painted from verse 4 down to verse 32... They portray conditions of human helplessness. But for every condition, you notice that there's a corresponding grace of God. The Lord has got the power to change things, he's saying. In each case, the psalmist says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And you know what? 
God saved them. He delivered them. The Lord has the ability to reverse conditions. And he can change the course of life for anybody and everybody. In the book of Joel, we're introduced to a great time of famine because of locusts. And these locusts had devastated crop after crop. But God said, I have the power to restore to you the lost years. Not just give you a good crop next year. No, he says, I can give you a crop next year that's going to replace all the crops that you've lost. God's got the power to do that sort of thing. Verse 4 to 9 of our psalm here deals with a caravan that's lost in the desert. The people are hungry, they're tired, they're thirsty. Can't find their way. Homeless, in distress, their souls begin to faint. What do they do? They cry to the Lord. But this picture here has got a wider focus. Many people today, they are confused, they're weary, they can't make sense of existence. They ask questions like, why am I here? What's the point of it all? Where are we going? And they're like people just lost in a desert, wandering, wandering, wandering. Unable to find the way to the city. And so people are plagued by futility. They're lost in some sort of dreary, monotonous routine. Existing. Other people, of course, are lost in a, what we might call a desert of affluence. They're so rich in things, but they're poor in soul, and they're hungering and thirsting for the, the bread and, and the water of life. And others are lost in a desert of loneliness, searching for love and for friendship, can't find it. Verse 10 to 16 is a second picture. It's one of captivity. It's people described sitting in darkness, bound in affliction and iron. Why are they there? Well, he tells us. He says, because they rebelled against the word of the Lord and they spurned the counsel of the Most High. Verse 11. The Jew in exile would be an application of this, but I think we can paint with a much broader brush than that. Here are people whose misfortunes are no accident. It's a cause and effect world that we live in. And these people disobeyed the way of the Lord and the scripture teaches the way of the transgressor is hard. You see, it all began with freedom of choice. Either choose the Lord's way or choose the world's way. And they made bad choices until they were hooked by those bad choices and now they're in bondage to alcohol, they're in bondage to other drugs, they're in bondage to gambling, they're in bondage to all of the lusts of the flesh. They're like people in prison and they're helpless. Yet he says in verse 13, he says, they cry to the Lord and they're delivered. We might ask the question here, does the Lord hear the prayer of sinners? And the answer most assuredly is yes. Notwithstanding what some uninspired man in John 9 said about that. 
It's true. God will refuse to hear certain prayers. But it's also true that God will weigh every circumstance and decide whether he will choose to answer a sinner's prayer or not. This is not talking about eternal life. But God can choose whether to send blessing upon the just and the unjust and upon the good and upon the evil. Verse 17 through 22. This is a picture of suffering. He talks about men and women who by their own folly and sin have been brought to the very edge of the grave. Desperate. They've lost all desire for food. They're emotionally and physically ill under a nagging, tormented conscience. And taking a pill is not helping. Medical science can't cure them. It's like the doctor says of Lady Macbeth, this disease is beyond my practice. More, she, more needs she the divine, not the physician. Yet it says, they cry to the Lord, and the Lord saves them. Then in 23 to 32, he has a picture here that he paints of ancient mariners caught out at sea in a storm, and they're tossed to and fro. How many times has that happened? Probably as we speak right now, there are mariners in various parts of the oceans of our world who are in this very predicament. They're caught in a storm. Or maybe it's just some bloke who went fishing and the storm came up. What was a nice, calm day turns into something that's life-threatening. In a sea voyage, it's an apt description of life, isn't it? You know, some days are just normal and they're calm. Just, just got, you know, the average little waves that trundle along. And so life has its normal sicknesses and sorrows and anxieties and disappointments that are just part and parcel of life. But then there come the big storms in life. Gales of personal disaster, social calamities. These things strike and uh, we reel like drunken men on a deck of a ship in a storm. At our wit's end, carried to the heights and plunged to the depths and courage fails. And yet, again, he says, a cry to the Lord is heard. And he answers it with entry to a calm harbour. And I hope you picked up as uh, he went through these four scenes that he paints, this recurring theme that men should praise the Lord. Verse 8 and verse 9, he says, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of Verse 15, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. Verse 21, same. Verse 31, the same. 
It's the recurring theme. Verse 33 to 43 of this particular psalm is different in style from the first part of the psalm. These pictures with their finishing chorus or refrain, that all ceases. I believe what he has done here is he simply just filled out the whole picture of life because in those first four scenes that he speaks of there, he's spoken of God's gracious response to man's plights, man's specific troubles. But the psalmist doesn't want us to think that God is only in the dramatic. God is only to be found in the exceptional things of life. Many men feel like their life is commonplace. Is that the way you feel about your life? It's just a, just a, just a common old life, you know? And maybe you've never been lost in a desert. Maybe you've never been in a jail. Maybe you've never ever been deathly ill. Maybe you've never been in a boat caught in a storm. Does that mean that you are therefore outside of the sphere where God's mercies and blessings are to be found? So what he does here in the last part of this psalm, he sketches ordinary, commonplace life and he shows that God is involved in that too. He speaks of the commonplace adversities of life. He speaks of seasons, rains, floods, droughts, effects on farming. He speaks about the commonplace enterprises of life, like working for a living, tilling and building and planting and tending cattle and whatever else that men do. He speaks about the commonplace disasters of life, accidents, disease, plagues, talks about the commonplace enmities of life. There are few people that go through life without suffering from the ill will of other people. That's all part of life. But what he's doing here, I believe, is he's painting a picture of the wheel of life going full circle as history unfolds. The lowly are pushed down, but then the lowly are lifted up. The proud are lifted up, but then the proud are abased. The fertile ground and the rivers, ah, the rivers dry up and the land becomes like a desert. Oh, and that desert, it became, becomes a place of verdant pasture and standing water, he said. But in all of the circle of life, men are to recognize the hand of God and his blessings and to give him thanks and praise. What does God do in all of this? Here's the bottom line. What does God want? God wants men to seek him. That's what he wants. Romans chapter 3 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul borrows from Psalm 14. And he makes the hyperbolic statement, he says, there are none that seek after God. Sometimes it seems that way, doesn't it? Nobody seeks after God. And for all sorts of reasons. 
It is said that Ezra prepared his heart to seek the Lord in Ezra 7 verse 10. But many people lack the motivation to do that sort of thing. Why should I seek the Lord? How can men be motivated to serve the Lord, to seek the Lord? Well, what we've got here in this psalm is people seeking the Lord. Where has the impetus come from? The impetus has come from God. God has put them in a situation where maybe for the first time in their life they've sort of realized, I need God. So they cry unto the Lord. I was thinking about this and watching the news the uh, week or two ago then when the fires were at their height down south where there was a, a man interviewed and he had just uh, come through uh, one of the raging infernos in one of the uh, villages down there and he made the point and he was sort of laughing a little bit at the time but he said, he said, he said oh that fire, he says, I'm an atheist, he says, but I prayed to God. the old story, no atheist in the foxhole, eh? I don't know what the future holds for that man. I don't. But I do know this, God got his attention. God got his attention. Maybe that young man never thought he needed God. But now... He lives with the fact that there was this incident in his life that's maybe part of his nightmares that remind him, I'm not always in control. There are circumstances in my life where I have nowhere to turn and I'm forced to get on my knees. And that's what Abraham Lincoln said when he was president of the United States. He says there are times, he says, when I've got nowhere else to go except get on my knees. And that's what God does. God wants men to seek him. There's a man one time who had a big big wagon loaded with lumber and it was being pulled by a team of mules. Anyway, after a while, mules being stubborn as they are, they just balked and they just stopped, wouldn't go any further. And he's trying to coax these mules to move and they wouldn't move and there was a guy going past and he said, you having trouble with your mules? And he said, yes, I am. I just can't get them to move. He says, I'll fix it. So he went round to the wagon and he found a nice piece of 4 2 He walked up to the front of the mule team and he just laid back with that thing and whack. Fair across the nose of the leading mule. The mule almost fell to its knees. And the owner was quite upset. He said, look, I, I thought you said you could get my mules to move. I didn't want you to kill them. He says, kill them? I'm just getting their attention. You know, men are as stubborn as mules. What's God got to do to get their attention? What's God got to do to encourage men to seek Him? So He puts us in circumstances where we're no longer in control and men seek God. Let's finish off on Acts 17. You see, because... God wants us to have that victory that we long for. 
God's not the great goalkeeper of heaven desperately trying to keep as many people out as he can. God's up there trying to encourage people to seek him and come in. And he can bless them eternally. In Acts 17, in verse 26, Paul says that he made of one all nations for men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he's determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. He knows how long every civilization is going to last. He knows exactly the amount of territory they're going to occupy. Why has he done this? Look at 27, that they should seek the Lord. If happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of them. God knows where every person lives and he knows for how long they will live. He knows what circumstances will come upon the inhabitants of every country under the sun. He knows whether the land is a, whether it's a, a sunburnt nation of floods and droughts or whether it's a a land that suffers from unpredictable earthquakes and volcanoes, or whether it's a land that suffers from blizzards and tornadoes and plagues and whatever else comes upon the face of the earth. He knows all that. But what does he do with those things? He uses those things. You see, it's in the unpredictable circumstances of life that's when the times come when human life and control are tested and the need for the Lord becomes apparent. So the Lord, in every nation under the sun, he provides these little spurs, if you like, provides these circumstances that men might seek the Lord because he wants to bless us he wants us to have that victory you seeking the Lord has God got to hit you over the nose with a bit of 4B2 God got to destroy your house in a fire or wash it away in a flood or put you on a sick bed or something like that to get your attention. You know, he will do that. He tries desperately hard to reach into the life of every person and get them to turn to him. And as the psalmist keeps on saying, and they cried to the Lord and the Lord saved them. He's the answer. In him we have the victory, not only in this life, but in the life that is to come. Is that the invitation song? We're going to sing 147. It's what we call an invitation song. Maybe you're seeking the Lord. Maybe you've got to that point in your life where you realize that you're not in control. That you need the Lord, you want the Lord, and He's right there. He's not far from any one of us.
Paul said there in Acts 17. Greatest blessing that he can offer you, it's not good health, it's not riches, or anything like that. Greatest blessing he wants to give you is freedom from sin and eternal life. And it's the same old story. Hadn't changed for 2,000 years. You believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God? You believe he died on the cross, was buried, and was raised? You believe he died for your sins? That's good. You prepared to turn from your sins, the very things that put him on the cross? You prepared to confess with your mouth what you believe about Jesus? What you need to do is allow your body to be buried in a watery grave. Be baptized into Christ. In order that your sins be washed away. And he promises to do that. And no promise God ever made has ever been broken. He wants you to seek him. He wants you to find him. He wants you to find the, the blessings that are found only in Jesus Christ. He wants you to receive the victory that can only be found. In Jesus Christ. You're subject to the gospel call. Won't you come as we stand and as we sing? 147.